Hello and welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. I'm John Passmore and today we've got a mixed bag for you. We've got the cooker falling off, we've got dodging gales day after day and we've got Frank Sinatra. Today the cooker fell off. There was a crash to which I must admit I didn't pay much attention at the time being out in the cockpit getting us sailing again. We had spent 12 hours hove to under the trysail, even though the wind never did make it to full gale force. However, beating into a force 7 is just so unpleasant, and there is so much leeway that progress is negligible, and anyway, I needed to practice with the trysail. Returning eventually to the cabin, there was the cooker lying askew across the galley. That's odd, I think to myself. It's all crooked. Then reality dawns. That was the crash. On closer examination, it turns out that the massive stainless steel fixings, which inspired such confidence, were in fact only screwed into the bulkhead and not bolted, and not deeply screwed in at that. All it took was the boat to jump off of a particularly awkward wave left over from the near gale, and the whole thing wrenched itself off its mountings. With a thousand miles to go, this would be a problem in the normal course of events. Indeed, if times were normal just at the moment, I would be considering how to effect repairs. But, in fact, this is not an issue because the cooker has not been used at all for the last 36 hours. We're out of gas. No, I can't believe it either. But on the third day of the voyage, the cylinder gave out and the spare is empty. No matter how stupid this may seem, in fact it is deliberate. The cylinder was changed on July the 19th and I was ashore for a week in Ponta Delgada and not using it at all. And considering that normally a cylinder lasts anywhere from six weeks to just over two months, I reckoned I had plenty to get me home. The fact that I then spent three days sailing to Halter and stayed there for four days somehow got left out of the calculations. As for the reason I didn't get the spare refilled, well, I'm afraid I'm over budget for this month and I reckoned it would be cheaper back in the UK, particularly with the exchange rate on the euro at the moment. Oddly, at the time, I considered this less of a problem than having no music on the way out. I've got plenty of food, and that can be eaten cold, and plenty of beer to make up for the tea and coffee. The biggest problem could be my daily cup of herbal tea, but it seems that if you soak the tea bag in cold water for long enough, it seems to infuse well enough. So, there is no need to fix the cooker immediately. Instead, the urgent question was how to secure it. Otherwise, it was likely to smash itself to pieces as soon as we tacked. In the end, I stuffed it up in the forecastle with the dinghy, the bike and the sails. Not the easiest thing to do with the boat jumping off waves at five knots. A few scratches on the varnish, I'm afraid to say. Of course, this would be the time to get a new one. It's the same Flavel Vanessa that I had on Largo, which means it probably came with the boat 45 years ago. The only trouble with that idea 
is that a new one, with flame failure devices and all the burners and a lot less rust, costs £500. And I can think of plenty of kit I would love to spend £500 on. Anchor Rescue, Code Zero, a new cooker, I'm afraid, is just plain boring. Instead, I will get a couple of stainless steel plates made up and drilled to order. That should give it a new lease of life. Uh, that and some decent bolts. Sitting here on the lee berth, feet wedged against the windward, occasionally finding the keyboard jumping under my fingers, I tell myself I should not be complaining. Remember all the complaints about beating into strong headwinds for ten days round the top of Scotland, eh? Well, logic suggests that if you keep sailing then one day, you will have those winds up your chuff, as they say. Sure enough, over the last five days, we have logged 363 miles. That is 70 miles, 95 miles, 87 miles, and finally 111 miles in each 24-hour period. That was as the wind stayed solidly in the western quarter. Of course, yesterday morning I did wake up to a flat calm. The sails, still set for a moderate breeze from the northwest, slatted back and forth, and by breakfast time we were pointing listlessly back the way we had come. It stayed like that all morning, and I motored for an hour while reading the last pages of John Grisham's Roaster Bar, and uh, managed to steer a not-too-wiggly course at the same time. The real reason for motoring is to top up the batteries and make some hot water for the proper strip wash I promised myself. The calorifier heats it to 42 degrees centigrade, which is really hot for washing, but not hot enough to make coffee. Anyway, I'm not sure about drinking water out of the calorifier. After that, something I've wanted to do for ages. Take down the wind vane and draw the old man's sailing logo on both sides. We'll be in marinas in the Solent and need people to see the website address. And sure enough, as it always will, the wind filled in again. By mid-afternoon, the vane could cope with the steering and by tea time the chute had us bowling along at five knots. I've had no forecasts, and although the digital barometer is broken and showing no figures or graph, I wonder if at heart it is still working, because suddenly the gale warning icon has appeared, and sure enough, by dusk we needed the first reef, and the GPS was still showing six and seven knots. I was rather pleased with this reef, because the moon wasn't up yet, I couldn't see much, and the head torch seemed to have gone AWOL. But it all went okay by feel. The really great thing was that the sea hadn't had a chance to build, and so we were slicing along through this essentially flat sea. I spent a long time standing in the hatch, watching the line of phosphorescence stretching out astern. By midnight, the wind was up to 27 knots and the boat becoming unmanageable, so time for the second reef and a scrap of headsail, still clocking six knots and more with occasional surfs up to eight, and in the right direction. This is the stuff. And it's still going today. 
The wind has veered a little, putting us on an even broader reach. How long can this go on? I call this being lazy. At five o'clock the alarm went off. At 5.30 the other alarm went off. The explanation for not getting up, not the excuse that is, there's no excuse, is that there's still 300 miles to go to the Lizard and the nearest I've come to a ship in the last 10 days is 11 miles and there has not been a breath of wind since tea time yesterday. So there didn't seem to be much urgency about the alarms. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a lazy sort of person. You won't find me lying on the sofa surrounded by empty beer bottles and decomposing pizza boxes watching daytime TV. Indeed, I would like it known that one o'clock this morning found me struggling into foul weather gear while the cabin rolled through 40 degrees. It had been raining for most of the day, and there is a saying, if the rain before the wind, lofty ships their topsails mind. If the wind before the rain, soon you may make sail again. It is surprisingly accurate but does nothing to tell you what will happen if there is no wind. I feel there should be another couplet. If the rain is all you get, sorry mate, you'll just get wet. Anyway, at one in the morning there was a breath of wind. Only about three knots, which normally is not worth bothering about. But if I could manage to turn the boat round and head in the right direction, the wind would be from astern. And that means that if I had the downwind rig, we could do two or three knots. Still rolling like a pig, of course, but rolling and going somewhere is a lot better than rolling and going nowhere. So, for the best part of an hour, I faffed around with a head torch rigging two booms, the temporary forestay, the staysail and cruising chute, and the eight control lines that that little lot requires. The wind vane took over, and after sitting in the cockpit watching us gliding silently over a flat sea, I settled down for a peaceful night of progress, with nothing to disturb me but the alarms every ninety minutes. Of course, a single-hander sleeping for ninety minutes in the English Channel would never do. But out here, especially with the AIS running, you could probably sleep all night and not come to grief. No. The reason for the alarms is in case the wind changes. The last thing you want is to poke your head out of the hatch in the morning and the find that you've spent the last six hours going in the wrong direction. Or, in this case, you find that by 3.30am the wind has dropped again and the boat is going nowhere. Well, not quite nowhere. The effect of the endless rolling is to make the sails act like a bird's flapping wing. It does produce just enough drive to keep the boat moving in about half a knot. With four and a half sails, the wear on the canvas is not worth the progress, but with my two headsails, firmly tied down on their booms, wafting gently back and forth without any of the cracking and banging and the worries about the stitching, that's progress. So I left them. At five o'clock, the alarm said, It's five o'clock.
my alarm speaks now. However, the boat was still rolling from the perspective of my sleeping bag. Nothing had changed. In which case, actually getting up would be nothing more than an inconvenience. So I didn't. I think what I need is an alarm which says it's five o'clock and the wind has sprung up, but from exactly the opposite direction. If you get your ass out of bed and bother to take a look, you will find that the boat is gliding silently over a flat sea at three and a half knots in the wrong direction. When I did finally get up at half past eight, we were nine miles further away from our destination than we had been when I went to bed. Worse still, the wind had died again, so there was not even the hope of making up the loss. And when it did come back, it was from the northeast, exactly where I wanted to go. It wasn't until midday that we were back to where we started. In other words, I had lost about 12 hours. As I write this, we are back on course at three and a half knots, but it'll be another few hours before the errant bit of track drops off the plotter and stops accusing me. Gale Dodging Sitting in Havilet Bay in Guernsey last Sunday, I fired off a post to the family WhatsApp group saying that the book claimed the bay was protected from southwesterly gales and that I hoped the book was right. In the event, there was a good deal of swell, but I came to no harm. Now I'm in Pool Harbour, sheltering under the lee of Brownsea Island, while watching a whole succession of gales scream across the Winguru weather forecasting app. The passage across the English Channel was fairly quick in force 5 to 7, and I sailed right into Pool Harbour at 1.30 in the morning, anchoring in the first likely spot at the eastern end of Brownsea Island, with the intention of finding somewhere more sheltered in daylight. However, since I'd slept a bit on the way and didn't feel remotely tired, I stayed up reading until four, which meant that the harbour master came and calling midday, I had just finished breakfast. There are some vacant moorings round the corner if you'd like to move, he shouted against the wind his launch bucking on the breakers kicked up by the mile-and-a-half fetch from the Godlingston shore. You'd be more comfortable round there. Besides, if you drag your anchor, you'll be down amongst all those moorings across there. He gestured towards the sandbank shore and the most expensive property values in the world, with boats to match. For a moment, I wanted to say I would prefer my anchor to his moorings. After all, I knew what I was dealing with with my 20-kilo Rockner. It's two sizes heavier than the recommended one for my boat. But, of course, the harbour master didn't know that. What he did know was that the moorings round the corner were the heaviest in the harbour. All the boats on them were at least 14 metres, compared to Samsara's 9.7. Besides, Arguing with harbour masters is just plain impolite, apart from being stupid. The only trouble was I had been on one of these moorings before. They had a small stainless steel shackle which you have to get a rope through. The best way to do this is for one person to snare the boy with the boat hook, 
second to reach over the side and thread the rope, the third to keep the boat motoring gently ahead and in position next to the boy, so that all this can be accomplished without any unseemly shouting or falling in the water. I have to say that with Storm Alley still setting in, it took me about two hours to perform all of these tasks simultaneously by myself. I think I'd be forgiven for not getting up much earlier yesterday. Meanwhile, it looks as though I have plenty of time. Scrolling through the Wind Guru timeline, the screen goes mostly purple at least once every 24 hours. I had planned to go to the Southampton Boat Show on Sunday, the last day when they sell off all the stuff they don't want to take home. But it looks like being utterly miserable, and I would have to go into Ocean Village Marina with their £37.05 fee, which would probably wipe out all the boat show savings. So I'm here until Monday, a mile from the shore, but with plenty to do. For one thing, an email had arrived while I was in the Azores from a literary agent. Following the Daily Mail's glowing review of my book Trident, I wrote to all the London literary agents, but they all wanted a formal submission, which I couldn't be bothered to do at the time. Now that the Shiel Land Agency has written apologising for not getting back to me sooner, it seems like rather a good idea. Of course, if I'm going to do a synopsis and everything, it makes sense to go to some trouble. So why not update it? After all, what's the point in a book set in the future, it was written in the 1980s and set in the 90s, if they haven't even got around to inventing the mobile phone? So I've had to rewrite the first 50 pages. And you have no idea the changes that that has involved. All of which brings me to another little money spinner. On the way down to Ponta Delgada, I read Camino Island by John Grisham, which is all about the rare book trade. I had no idea how much the limited-run first editions of bestsellers could be worth. And behind my left ear, I have six copies of the first Amazon edition of Trident, and there can't be more than a few dozen of those, before I corrected all the mistakes. In fact, there can't be more than about 300 altogether sold on Amazon, which is tiny. I was thinking of selling them to anyone who came aboard for a coffee and showed interest. Now I shall keep them for myself, and, of course, if you have a copy, you might like to do the same. Uh, if you haven't, <laughs> you can always order one from Amazon. Talking of the natural mineral supplement I take every day, I should mention that I started taking it in May 2016 because of arthritis in my hands. Within a few months the pain eased and then disappeared, and I've had none since. Meanwhile, I realised that a patch of skin on my nose which had never completely healed suddenly did so. Various other unexpected benefits became apparent. I started waking up before the alarm, feeling I might as well get up. I could drive for four hours without feeling drowsy. A lacerated leg from stepping on barbed wire healed remarkably quickly without the need for antibiotics, 
I should add that during the previous year I'd spent so much time on antibiotics that I ended up in hospital having him intravenously. All I'd done was bang my elbow. Also, periodic episodes of optical migraine ceased completely. You can read more about it on the blog at oldmansailing.com. Six days. It must be the longest I've stayed aboard in the same place since I moved on to Samsara last year. Six days we've been gale-bound in pool. Well, technically speaking, it's not a gale, just blowing 25 knots and raining sideways like it did all day yesterday. Am I bothered? I'm loving it. If you have read the old man's story page on the blog, you will know that I always knew this is what I wanted to do. I am thrilled to report that it is living up to every expectation. Yesterday I phoned my 20-year-old son at university and he asked what I was doing. I suppose it was a good question. What have I done for the past six days? I haven't been ashore. In fact, the shore is more than a mile away, unless you count the uninhabited Brown Sea Island a hundred yards outside the window. The weather has been so foul that, apart from hoisting the aquare generator into the rigging to make electricity from all this wind, the only times I have been outside have been to check for chafe on the snubbing line on the anchor chain. Then it's back down below and put the kettle on. Just as the days settle into routine at sea, so they do in harbour. And who needs to set an alarm? There is luxury in waking up when you finish sleeping. I reach out from under the covers and pull the phone in with me. The blog is producing some excitement. Fifty views a day and rising. A good deal of time has been devoted to updating the novel, which is currently for sale on Amazon. See above. Now it's gone off to the London agent. While I was in Jersey, I caught up with my old school friend, the novelist Peter James, and discovered just how successful he is. Nineteen million books in the Roy Grace series alone. What the hell have I been doing in my life all this time? Anybody can self-publish on Amazon. So next, fire off a magazine article. And when I finish writing this, I shall dig out the new book. Started a month ago and in abeyance because the plot got stuck. Now I stumble on Stephen King's assertion on YouTube. A plot is the last resort of bad writers. Hmm. So that's all right then. The days are punctuated by tea and coffee and hours spent reading the Kindle. Currently Jojo Moyes, Neville Shute and Stephen Leather. Meals from the tins locker are highlights and the evening an occasion. Curtains drawn at seven o'clock, charcoal stove lit, and then out comes a beer and a book. The Pringles ran out the day before yesterday. After that, 45 minutes of clarinet practice and just start cooking before eight. At sea, I started a tradition of Dickens with the meals, and gradually the endless chapters of the Pickwick papers are slipping by. He's a lot more fun than when they made me read him at school. After dinner, when the evening's musical comes to an end, Gigi and My Fair Lady are favourites, 
when the washing up is done and the breakfast porridge soaking, another couple of bags of charcoal plop into the stove, and it's time to settle down for movie night. Don't you just love Netflix and Amazon Prime? I've even got some DVDs in case there's no mobile signal and the data allowance runs out. Finally, I can promise you there is nothing, absolutely nothing, more cosy than snuggling down in a darkened cabin with the wind moaning in the rigging and small waves slapping against the hull while your whole world rocks you to sleep. Now, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about UW. That is the utility company that bundles all your services together in one. Uh, they do gas, electricity, telephone, broadband, mobile, even insurance. This is for people in the UK. So do have a look. I've been involved with them since 2005. Can't recommend them highly enough. My page is www.pickabundle.co.uk And now we have something called Frank Sinatra and the Left Flanking Movement. They gave us the finisher's plank before the start. It was a comforting gesture, full of confidence, rather like sending troops into battle with the medals already pinned to their chests. It was a nice little plaque, too. A plastic tile with ASAP 91 written on it and the boat's name. People would be able to come down into Largo's cabin and say, Ah, you did the Azores and back. There was a lot of marina credibility in the plaque. So why, as soon as I'd peeled off the backing strip, did I know that I had done something terribly, terribly wrong? A shadow passed over the sun. A platoon of departed single-handers tramped over my grave. The boat rocked uncertainly in what ought to have been the calm of Falmouth Harbour. And, from that moment on, nothing went right. Take, for instance, the business with the spinnaker. I had spent good money and shed out not a few principles in getting a spinnaker squeezer. I was, of course, quite unable to master it and had to listen to Mary Falk, who is five foot and a smidgen, explaining, I haven't used one since I gave up on it and cut the endless line off the muckle flugger. When you think about it, it's worth doing the round Britain race just so you can say something like that. Sure enough, within two hours of the start, my endless line wrapped itself endlessly round the squeezer, and then the whole lot wrapped endlessly round the forestay. Ten minutes later the spinnaker was flying proudly on its own and the squeezer was stuffed in the forepeak, plotting revenge. This was not long in coming. A hundred miles west of Ushant, the tape player packed up. Now, there may be some skippers in the race who would be phased by the sat-nav going down or the VMG computer churning out numbers for a night at the bingo, but aboard Largo, with her new waterproof cockpit speakers, the greatest disaster imaginable is Frank Sinatra getting halfway through New York, New York and turning into Donald Duck. This meant switching to the spare tape deck. Yes, I carry one. 
even though it meant some ticklish work with the soldering iron as the boat surfed at seven and a half knots. The following morning was warm and calm, and the salt water pump in the galley expired. An hour after that, the galley was in the cockpit. That is to say that I had to take the whole sink unit out to get at the pump, and very soggy and smelly it was underneath. From the log that evening. 1900, Jenny down to number three size, lee rail dipping, and we're bashing on at five knots plus. I don't much want to go out there, and definitely the sextant doesn't, so we'll have to guess where we are. Since it must be more than 250 miles from the nearest land, does it really matter? Anyway, I've set the decker to look, and it appears to be cruising around the ocean, trying out different possibilities, like a dog who knows he buried a bone around here somewhere. Uh, the glass started dropping in a purposeful manner. The main sheet parted from the end of the boom, and among the concerto set up by the howl of the wind, the thump of the bow meeting solid water, and the rattle of spray competing with a downpour, there came the small but unmistakable sound of tearing sailcloth. This would not have happened if I had realised the reefing pennants should not be tied directly to the dinky little cringles the sailmaker had put into the bottom of the main this year. They promptly went back to the pad-eyes riveted to the boom where they belonged. It was later, lying in my bunk, muttering, that another sound came to me, the sound of a small metal object rolling to and fro on deck. It was a very unnerving sound, conjuring as it did images of an errant clavius pin. I looked very hard for this pin. I looked as hard as it is possible to look with a torch through the windows. I looked as thoroughly as anyone could look without actually going out and getting wet. At least I established that the mast was not going to fall down. Indeed, I managed to convince myself that the rattle was really some new installed shackle, and until now not a part of the usual noises of the boat at sea. Wrong. It was the carefully greased screws undoing themselves from the ends of the new full-length battens, and dropping like confetti all over the deck and into the sea. If you ever want to know what is the point of having a single sideband radio, it is for moments like this, at the height of the gale, when you can ring up your sailmaker and shout at him. The sailmaker, of course, recommended a more permanent solution than my idea, which involved lots of string. He wanted holes drilled and bolts inserted. People like that should be given a hand drill and put on a coach roof in the middle of a gale to see how long it takes them to drill through their foot. By the time I had removed each plastic fitting, taken it below to the vice clamped on the companionway steps, drilled holes for eight tiny bolts, fitted the eight tiny bolts without dropping or swallowing them, I assumed the rest of the fleet was long gone. As if that was not bad enough, when I looked round, most of the crew had jumped ship. There is a tradition aboard Largo that we sail these sorts of races with a geranium aboard. However, 
After the original died following stalwart service on an Azab and two transatlantics, friends became over-generous with replacements until the boat began to resemble a large window box. Well, not by the end of the gale she didn't. The pot lashed to the afterdeck simply bailed out over the back. The one wedged over the galley ended up in misery all over the chart table. The sole survivor went brown and seemed to be growing backwards. I went into a decline too and had to be forced to clean up and listen to a lecture on the benefits of the left flanking movement. The left flanking movement is much talked about in Azab circles and involves a great sweep down the Portuguese coast, sailing many extra miles but supposedly taking advantage of the Portuguese trades and staying away from the calms of the Azores High until the last possible moment. At least, that is the theory. From the log. Today I resolved not to spend so much time staring at the ocean. Today I resolved to do things. I began by getting the light headsail up before breakfast and then doing all the washing up. I spent ten minutes worrying myself sick over a report on the World Service that Alzheimer's disease is caused by the overuse of aluminium saucepans. And I have nothing else. I even whipped the end of the spinnaker sheet. Am I rewarded for this? Am I hell? We are now progressing in the wrong direction at 2.4 knots. It's that damn plaque. I know it is. And, of course, it was. For that was when I did what I should have done all that time ago in Falmouth. I jammed a screwdriver behind the finishes plaque and wrenched without any thought at all for the damage I might be doing to the bulkhead. The plaque popped off like a jack-in-the-box and the wind sprang up. Well, actually the wind took another 13 hours to spring up, but the two events were undoubtedly connected, because from that moment everything went right. I got the trumpet out of its case, this instrument I have acquired from my 16-year-old son George by the process of premature reverse inheritance, and as Largo sailed westwards I sat with the score of when the saints go marching in, propped up against the cockpit combing, and blew a series of quite different notes. I have previously maintained that trad jazz, like Vivaldi, attracts dolphins. I should now record that this is not the case. I have no idea why. After all, when I sailed into Ponta Delgada, last of the fleet, after fourteen days, and met Castaway, the Freedom 35, motoring out for a picnic because they'd been there so long, I gave them a rendition, and they were good enough to applaud. Even so, I suppose the early lessons might explain the lack of a pigeon. Everyone else seemed to give a lift to racing pigeons. The most spectacular was Charlie, who signed on with the Condor 37 Sally May, within sight of Land's End and practically walked ashore at the other end. Two days after they got in, he was still strutting up and down the pontoon, looking for his muesli. Robert Nickerson, skipper of the 60-foot Panic Major, took a rather different view of his passenger. Robert is a farmer and tends not to get sentimental about livestock. 
The wretched thing had three days' warning. By the time it was 480 miles further from land than when it arrived, and my crew came down saying that he couldn't get a grip on deck because of the mess, I took a winch handle to it. Its owner would have wrung its neck anyway, nothing more useless than a lazy racing pigeon. It was quite a topic of conversation while the fleet was in, that and what happened to everyone's laundry. The last of my smalls arrived half an hour before the restart, along with another commemorative plaque, this one presented by the Club Naval. I hid it in the galley locker, and Largo started with an unexpectedly lucky break. As one of only four boats to take the eastern and meteorologically more dicey route around the island, we carried the wind all the way and ended up careering along under too big a spinnaker, mostly out of control, and with the log occasionally claiming 8.9 knots. And this went on and on. After three days, the overall average was an unheard of 5.3. I began to think that the family wedding I had felt rather guilty in refusing might be a possibility after all. I crammed on all sail. I did things like getting up in the middle of the night to change spinnakers. We chafed through the guy. It was up so long. We pulled a clue out and spent a whole evening sewing it back in. When a gale roared up on the tail, I strapped down two reefs and a pulled-out jib and stood in the hatch mesmerised by the scene as a huge full moon lit up a monochrome seascape with waves blown flat and long streaks of spume stretching all the way to the horizon. I did not, as it happens, get to the wedding. In fact, we crossed the finishing line in Falmouth an hour before the bride reached the altar in Newbury. Largo had managed to cover 1,200 miles in 8 days, 22 hours and 56 minutes. That was faster than the old record. It was so fast that, on the return leg, we won on handicap. I would stick the plaque up again, but, come the prize-giving, there might be something more spectacular to occupy that space on the bulkhead. And thank you very much for listening. I look forward to the next time, and before I go, let me just tell you that if you've been so moved that you'd like to buy me a beer, you can. Go to oldmansailing.com and you'll find the link.